I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Darius McCollum, the most prolific train thief in New York City history. Who was Darius McCollum? He was an autistic man growing up in New York City in the 1970s who, after spending his early days riding the subway with his mother, developed a deep and passionate obsession for trains and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority that would consume his life. As a young child, he learned every single subway route throughout the entirety of the city by heart, memorized every procedure for train operation, and eventually started hanging out with MTA workers who taught him how to drive the trains. But being a passenger wasn't enough, and he spent the next 40 years stealing and driving trains and buses throughout New York City, getting caught each time, going to prison for years, and then getting out and doing it all over again. And despite the fact that the whole thing could have been solved at any minute by just giving him a real job at the MTA, or at least putting him in some sort of state-mandated therapy to manage his compulsion to drive trains, This might be the single bleakest example of somebody being utterly fucked over by the system in history. One, your boy Spandrew's in the pilot seat, so you know it's about to be a fucked up story about a sad neurodivergent boy being eaten alive by society. There are three significant stopgaps in the supposed social safety net we enjoy in the United States and other developed countries. When a person starts to veer off the right path, when they're getting in with bad crowds, becoming overwhelmed by life's hurdles, or starting to experiment with destructive behaviors, it's first up to the family to try their best to steer them back in the proper direction to support and protect. We've seen what it looks like for that to utterly fail in the case of David Hahn, a young boy so thoroughly neglected and forgotten by his family and the people in his community that it destroyed his life. After that fails, then you have a chance of being rehabilitated by society, social programs, community groups, shelters, Good Samaritans, charity organizations, AA meetings, people out there just looking for somebody to save. If all of that fails, it's only the system that can save you. Foster care, juvenile rehabilitation programs, government assistance, welfare, unemployment benefits, or prison. At least that's what we're told. And yet we see at scale that all three of these structures easily collapse in on themselves in a hyper-individualistic society. Thousands, millions of people fall through the cracks constantly. They're overlooked, forgotten, taken for granted, abused. It happens every day. But what happens when these systems not only ignore or overlook you, but seem actively designed to punish you? The way you are, the way you look at the world, and the things you're incapable of overcoming are openly what the barriers of society are constructed to deflect? There may be no better example of this in the history of the modern world than Darius McCollum. Darius McCollum was born in Queens, New York on March 28, 1965 to Elizabeth and Samuel McCollum. She doted on him, constantly helping him with his homework, showering him with praise and attention, and allowing him to get anything he wanted whenever he wanted. Most importantly, she'd go shopping with him constantly and buy him tons of gifts. For a time, he thought he might want to be a musician. His mom bought him a guitar, a drum set, and a piano, but he quickly realized that he didn't have a passion for any of them. 
However, during their many outings together, there was one constant source of joy that eventually bubbled over into an outright obsession, riding the New York subway system. Darius fell in love with riding the trains and begged his mom to take him any chance they could get. He'd stand at the window, peering out at the track, transfixed. But it wasn't just idle gazing that Darius was doing. Though she found his passion for the trains endearing, his mom soon realized something a bit more peculiar. Darius was memorizing the train routes with a seeming photographic memory. He eventually grew so familiar with the routes that his mom said he'd have friends and family members regularly calling him at home to ask him advice on the best trains to take to get to their destinations. And Darius happily gave in-depth instructions. But Darius's life was about to shift from the happy-go-lucky early days spent shopping and riding the train with his mom. He was entering public school, and the other children weren't as warm to his eccentricities as everybody had been when he was younger. Kids thought he was a know-it-all and a nerd, and frequently stole his lunch, forced him to do their homework, and tormented him. Similar to his memorization of the train routes, he had to develop elaborate escape routes home from school to avoid getting caught by his bullies. But there was another world waiting for him underground. You see, throughout the years of riding the train with his mom as a young kid, he had developed a rapport with the city transit workers. The drivers, conductors, and guard staff of the subway system had all taken a liking to Darius because he was a bright and interesting little kid. He looked up to these city workers, and they in turn weren't used to the respect, much less idolization of the people they shuttled around the city. And so to them, Darius was special. They loved having him around and would give him little odd jobs to do, such as sweeping up the subway platforms, opening and closing the train doors, making train announcements, all of which Darius absolutely loved. And so, all day at school, Darius couldn't wait for the final bell to ring so he could flee the unrelenting bullying and judgment of his peers and head down into the subway so he could hang out with the people who actually liked and respected him. The, the thing that st stuck out to me about this part, this early part of the story, is whenever Darius was like five, six, seven, he rode the train a lot with his mom. But then whenever he entered school, when he was like 10, 11, he just hung out in the New York subway system with like a bunch of adults that worked there. And it's it's so it's so crazy because back in this time in the in the in the late 1970s, uh, New York was like a much more dangerous place. Like the, the, the city was a much more dangerous place than it is now. And the, the subway system specifically was this like it was it was, you know, it was super dangerous to hang out down there compared compared to today or at least, the you know, at least the way we think about it. I mean, the, in terms of like crime rates and just your overall feeling of safety whenever you're in these areas. Um, and yet this like 11 year old kid is like hanging out by himself down here. Whereas like I can't Im I can't imagine allowing my I can't imagine anybody allowing their kids to just go off by themselves and hang out in the subway system now. That's comparatively supposed to be much safer to be in. Like, it's insane. I can't even fathom that. But also, it's, you know, it's it was a different time, right? Like, kids were responsible for getting themselves to school. You know, when you lived in the city, that's just what you did, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, 100% it was a different time. And even, and even like when like when we were younger, it was all already a different time. Like, it wasn't this crazy. Like, I don't think my parents would have let me, like, go off into the subway system. But, you know, you like rode the bus and walked home from school and I feel like you got left home, left home alone younger at a younger age. And there was less of a there was a less of a like, oh, we have to have our eyes on you at at all times. Um, and that's and that's from to a certain degree, a uniquely American phenomenon. Like in a lot of other countries, they're less way less strict and like helicoptery over their kids. Yeah, I remember when I was in. When I was in Japan, there would be like little kids, like four or five years old, 
walking to the bus or walking through the subways, you know, like by themselves. It was so crazy. I was like, isn't isn't anybody going to kidnap these children? And one of the people I was there with was like, no, there, there's like literally like three known kidnappings in Japanese history. And they were like huge deals. Like kidnapping just isn't a thing in our culture as much, which is pretty wild. Yeah, it's like and it's similar in some other countries as well. We're like in Germany, like they like little kids that are like, you know, six, seven, eight, they like ride the train to school themselves. And uh, they're they're almost like a little they're almost obnoxious about it where they're just like Americans watch their kids what the fuck um but yeah it, yeah it's just it's just it's just but it, but but it's not even just like oh it, to a certain degree like that's fine like oh you're gonna ride because new york city the the city runs off of this public transportation system so it's incredibly common for everybody to ride the subway to a certain degree that's fine like oh you're gonna go to school using the subway system but the fact that like he hung out down there with like adults is 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 odd to me. That stick not odd, but it sticks out to me as like can't imagine that happening now. I mean, I can't even really imagine adults are scary when you're 11, you know. Yeah, and and, and you would imagine especially nowadays like for the most part I feel like if you were a little kid and you were like going around hanging around uh you know in the subway with a bunch of like city workers, they'd probably be like go away kid like this I I don't I'm you're annoying. I don't want to talk to you. Um, but these guys, these guys were just loving it. They were hanging out with this kid. They're like, nobody else gives a shit about trains. This is a solid 50 years before that one guy on TikTok is just obsessed with trains. Yep, we're, we're, we're soaking this up. But things were about to get much worse for Darius above ground. One morning, a snowstorm rocked Queens, and most kids didn't show up to school. In Darius's class, he and one other kid were the only ones to show up. And so his teacher got out some puzzles for them to work on while she got work done. As Darius sat working on his puzzle, the other kid walked over to the teacher's desk and grabbed a pair of scissors. He walked up behind Darius, who was completely oblivious to what was going on, and he stabbed him in the back with the scissors, apparently jealous that he'd been given the other puzzle. The blades pierced deep into Darius's back, and he screamed in pain. The teacher ran over to find the child about to stab Darius again and quickly disarmed him. Darius's parents were notified, and he was rushed to the hospital, where he was treated for a punctured lung. The blade of the scissors was a few inches from puncturing his heart, and he likely would have died if they hadn't got to him sooner. From this moment on, Darius completely withdrew from his peers. He didn't trust other kids, and he didn't want to be in school. Jesus Christ! He was in he was in a class with, like, Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, there was just one other kid in the class, and he was like, I want that puzzle. I'm gonna kill you. That is so crazy. I can't even, like... You know what? When you kind of think about it, it it's strange that that doesn't happen more just because kids have no real understanding of life and death or physical harm like what to a kid what's the difference between you know slapping somebody or smacking somebody and like doing the same thing with a bladed weapon in your hand yeah yeah they don't they don't they don't understand it and and they have and they don't really have a concept of death like you know my kids um, you know as i've talked about before a couple of years ago my my brother died and actually just uh you know uh, the other week our dog died um that we've had since you know my oldest son was a baby um and you know they loved our dog they they had a lot of attachment to him but it's really fascinating to see the reaction whenever they found out that he died they just like they don't even even my oldest son who's who's six years old, he just, they don't fully like grasp what that even means that you would die and be gone forever. So how did it, what did, what did, what did Phoenix WK say? 
Well, so it was, yeah, it was actually really fascinating. I mean, the whole thing is very sad, uh, but also s- secondarily extremely fascinating. Um, when we when we told our because uh, honestly, it was like it was a super traumatic situation. Like we we took I think it was most traumatic for me because I mean my we 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 took um, our our dog uh, was experiencing was coughing and then also he had he had this chronic ear infection problem that he'd had since we got him basically um and it was bothering him a lot so my my wife was like oh i'm just gonna take him to the vet to check to get something for his ear and also to check on this cough so it was like he's he was super old he was 14 years old he had a lot of problems he had really bad legs he could barely walk and he also had um cancer that basically it was like he got this cancer at some point maybe like a little less than a year ago and it was like they've removed many cancerous things from him. But then at this point they were like, at this point you should probably just let it go and just let nature take its course. And he's probably going to be passing away within the next year or so. So it wasn't like crazy out of nowhere surprise, but it was a relatively routine thing. She was just taking him to get this ear thing checked. So she goes to the vet and takes him and leaves him. And then she comes back and we just think like, Oh, they're checking out his ear and, they call us and they're like, he's in critical condition. He's probably going to die within the next couple of days. And we were just like, what the fuck? So my wife goes to get him and she's and she's like, OK, I'm going to come. We're going to bring him back and we'll just talk about what we're going to do, what we're going to do. We can have him maybe put down at home so he's he doesn't have to be put down in a in a vet office or whatever. So she leaves and she comes back and I'm expecting to pull it, carry him out of the car and put him in bed or whatever. And she's like, can you come here for a second? And I go into the bedroom and she's like, he died. Like she just went to the vet. And when she showed up right before she got there, he died. And I was just like, I was I was like, it was so shocking to me because I just thought she was bringing him home. So we told the kids and whenever whenever my wife said that Nina was our dog, Nina was dead. My my oldest son, he started laughing and then like and then he like stopped laughing like mid laugh and was like, oh, you're you that you you're serious. Like he said something like you're serious or oh you mean it or something like that like he thought she was or his knee-jerk reaction was that she was joking or something like that and then he stopped and he was like oh you you're serious and she was like yes and then he like turned his head away and he just looked away from us but he didn't he and i thought he was gonna start crying or something like that but he just turned he didn't want to look at us and then um and then our and then our 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 middle son our, our our youngest son middle child um he he was we were like my my wife was like oh it's okay if you guys cry or whatever and he was like i'm not gonna cry he started like laughing or whatever like basically just i i think he was kind of like i think the main thing about it was they're both of their reactions were very like avoidant or very like you know distracting like i don't want to think about this or talk about this so my my youngest son started like joking and laughing around my my eldest son was like looking away from us he didn't want to look in our eye and I thought he was going to cry, but whenever whenever she said you, it's okay if you cry, he like looked back and he was like, "No, crying's bad." And we were like, "No, that's not that's not true. Crying is not bad. You can cry. That's fine." And he's like, "No, you can't cry. That's a bad thing to do." And we were like, "What are you talking about? That's not true. You can cry. That's there's nothing wrong with crying." Um. So yeah, they kind of had like a almost like an in denial reaction. Like they just didn't want to like uh they didn't want to like acknowledge that it was true. And over the and over the next couple of weeks, they've like slowly become more like aware of it or like acknowledging of it. But yeah, it was it was really fascinating to watch a six year old and a four year old react to their dog's death. Yeah, but but yeah. Anyway, so yeah, little kids they really have no conception of it. So yeah, you're right. Like the fact that 
and and I said that joke about how he was Jeffrey Dahmer before, but like he could have just been like a normal kid who just had some behavioral issues and had no idea of what the stakes of stabbing somebody with the, with scissors. Like he just was never properly taught. Like don't fucking do that because that you could kill somebody. Or maybe he was a serial killer in training. I don't know. The fact that he was the only other kid at school kind of speaks volumes to me because I think for Darius he was probably in class because. He would wake up at like five in the morning and just go ride the trains. And so it makes sense that he would have been at school because he got up before, you know, the the snowstorm hit or whatever, or, you know, before anybody could tell him you don't have to go to school. He's riding the trains, having the time of his life. And then he just goes to school because he doesn't know any better. And then you have this other kid who probably he was probably there because he probably just was neglected and just like his parents probably just didn't give a shit what he, what he was doing. So that it makes sense that he might have that this only other kid in school with him would have been maybe have some behavioral issues and stabbed him, almost killed him. No longer just a social outcast who fled towards the subway system the moment his school bell rang. Darius started acting out in school. If he got overwhelmed, he'd yell or flip tables over. He frequently pulled fire alarms and ran away from school and disappeared for long stints. The problem apparently became so bad that his parents committed him to a psychiatric hospital. Yes, a young child suffering from PTSD or trauma from an attempted murder exacerbated by untreated autism was put in the loony bin. Oh right, the autism. Keep in mind that during all of this, Darius had yet to be diagnosed, but we'll get back to that later. He stayed at the Elmhurst Hospital for nine months, during which doctors attempted to find a way to prevent his outbursts, depression, and anxiety by putting him on a variety of medications such as Thorazine, a powerful antipsychotic medication used to treat schizophrenia that has potential side effects such as violent seizures. However, in the nine months at the hospital, the only thing doctors were able to accomplish was turning young Darius into a drooling zombie by pumping him full of medications, and eventually his parents removed him. So, 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 th think about this. Think, think about, this is the beginning of the story. We haven't even gotten to the real shit that's happening. And already, this kid has been stabbed in his lung by a, by a, by scissors. And keep in mind, this isn't like a kid who has like neglectful parents or parents that don't give a shit about him, like David Hahn. Like his mom is like obsessed with him and she like buys him anything he wants. Like Darius is, I, I, it didn't really, the, 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 any of the research I did, I couldn't really find any like concrete information about like what economic class he was in. Like it never really mentioned whether he was like grew up poor or if his family was like middle class or upper middle, upper middle class. It didn't say anything about that. My only clue into that was that in the in the, you know, in the documentary about him, they talk about how. Uh, his parents just bought him whatever he wanted, and they would they bought him like a piano and a and a drum set and a and a and a guitar. So it didn't seem like he was poor. Um, at least from that, like I can't imagine growing up poor and your parents are just like, here's a piano and a guitar and a drum set because you just on a whim mentioned that you wanted to play instruments. Um, so he's not he's he's growing up in like i think like a middle class family his his mom is super attentive she's obsessed with him she's do dotes on him and d gives him whatever he wants and even then he starts acting out in school and they're like stick him in a mental institution for 9 months so this this kid who's like not neglected he starts showing like a modicum of behavioral problems and they just stick him in a institution like like can you imagine that if you if you were a kid and you just started misbehaving and they and they, and you just got locked up for 9 months and like pumped full of fucking medications like that's that's dark 
But mom, who's gonna play the piano, the saxophone, the guitar, and the drum kit you got me? Oh, little Timmy, we're gonna have good children do that. No! You're just in the in the white padded room playing air drums and practicing your scales on the wall. <laughs> One day I'll be a musician, I swear! The doctor's like, this person is mad, this little boy. He, uh, he thinks he's playing a piano. Turns out it wasn't actually mental illness. It was just class guilt. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, I just find, I just found this, I found this so shocking to get to this part and be like, man, they, they went right to put him in a mental, mental institution. Like, goddamn. And, and as we find out, like the issue is that he's autistic and doesn't do well in social situations. That's. That's the extent of it. And they, they stuck him in a mental institution for nine months, pumping him with Thorazine. Like, that's fucked up. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're in the beginning of the story and we'll get into this more, but it's because nobody understood this shit at the time. The stuff was all, uh, we'll cover this more later, but this, you know, autism really didn't start to get explored and understood until like the mid 80s. And even then, we're really only just now in the last 10 years starting to normalize it as like a, you know, an acceptable thing that isn't like, oh, you're autistic. You're a freak. So this this dude is just he was just he was just raw dog in autism in the 1970s, getting stuck in a mental institution. Darius started regularly running away from home and school and spending more time in the subway. But this wasn't just an annoying little kid bugging a bunch of nine to fives. The city workers loved having Darius around and actually started relying on him for help. Darius says he'd sometimes get phone calls to his house at 5 o'clock in the morning from workers asking him to come in and help them out. Workers would even fight over who he shadowed for the day. And if Darius's primary reason for being there was the trains, his second reason was that he just wanted to help people. He wanted to feel like he was making people's day better. He wanted to be Superman, who he idolized. So of course having all these grown-ups vying for his help made him fall even more deeply in love with the subway. I'd like to compare myself to Superman. He was migrated here through some kind of meteor. I was migrated here through the transportation thing. I was born in Brooklyn. Superman came from some distant planet. His weakness is kryptonite. My weakness is the third rail. His thing of being a superhero is saving the world and trying to bring about world peace. My thing is getting people from point A to point B in a timely fashion. So uh, th this this is going to just become even more and more relevant as we discuss this. But, um, you know, as we get into what happens with Darius and the things that he starts to do to get in trouble, um, it's important to keep in mind that at the end of the day, um, all he wants to do is help people. And his particular way of helping people is by he just wants to drive trains and, like, get people to their destinations. That is, that is the primary motivation of everything that he does. Um, and some of that isn't totally uh, altruistic, as we'll talk about as well. Um, a little bit of it is maybe, you know, just liking the attention of feeling like a hero. It's not it's not completely selfless. But at the end of the day, that's what that's that's all he's want. All he wants is he just wants to help people and like get them to their destinations. It's important to keep that in mind as we get into the increasingly more fucked up shit that happens to him. Eventually, he was spending so much time there that the city workers weren't just letting him sweep up and make announcements here and there. 
They started showing him how the trains worked. He'd sit with the driver and ask what every single button and switch did. He listened obsessively to the radio chatter between the driver and dispatch, absorbing every single word. And because of his photographic memory, he retained it all. Soon, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of how to drive a subway car, at least theoretically. Of course, he'd never be allowed to actually drive one until he was older. That was until a day in April of 1978, when one of his train driver buddies asked him to take a ride with him. Darius got onto the train as he'd done countless times before, but this time, the driver sat him down in the driver's seat and started coaching him through the process of getting the train going. He charged it, waited for the light to go green, eased off the brakes, and soon he was flying through the tunnels of New York City, driving the train all by himself. You know, with an operator standing over his shoulder, coaching him through it and ready to grab the controls back if anything went awry. Darius drove the train through several stops, completely on his own, before finally handing the controls back over to the operator. And he couldn't wait to do it again. Armed with a head full of memorized knowledge about driving trains, some actual hands-on experience, and a real MTA uniform he'd been issued by some of his city worker friends, Darius basically lived underground, taking every opportunity to learn as much as he could. He did this for years, soaking up more and more knowledge, until he basically knew more about the city transit system and how it worked than most of the actual workers. And then, one day in early 1980, one of Darius's driver friends asked him something he never could have dreamed of hearing as a 15-year-old boy. He asked him if he wanted to drive a train route by himself. While the driver stepped off for a few hours, he told Darius to drive the train along its normal route from Penn Station to the World Trade Center and back to pick him up. So the operator stepped off the train, entrusting a 15-year-old boy to shuttle a trainload of people to their destinations, and Darius started driving completely alone. Is the idea that the worker was like, hey bro, how do you feel about driving the train by yourself while I still cash the checks and presumably I'm still doing it, but it's you. That's absolutely what it was. That's actually a good thing to bring up as like a side conversation because I kind of steered away from talking about this in the text um, because I just didn't feel like it was really super relevant to the main thesis. But one thing that I don't explore really is that um, while, yes, these train operators and MTA workers like loved Darius and liked hang palling around with him and stuff, and they just were fascinated by him. And also, I think maybe a little flattered by like a little kid who thought they were heroes, which probably wasn't common for them. I think they absolutely were taking advantage of him and being like, we got this sycophantic little kid who wants to just do our job for us. And they were just like letting him sweep up platforms and, uh, you know, do little like, you know, go for work for them around around the around the place. And 100 um, percent. This was this guy being like, oh, you you we taught you how to drive the train. You're really good at it. I have utter confidence that you can do this. I'm just going to go fucking dick around for two hours while you just do my job for me. That's that's 100 percent what this person was doing, which is which is as we'll get to makes us even more fucked up what's about to happen. And he did it flawlessly. From Penn Station to the World Trade Center, Darius followed every single signal, rule, procedure, and protocol, and gave the passengers one of the smoothest and most on-time train rides of their lives. That was until he got to Chambers Street, where a passenger happened to walk by the driver's car and see that a small child was running her train. She went and narked on him to the dispatch tower, who called ahead to the next stop and informed them that there was a kid driving the E-train. When Darius arrived at the next stop, he waited patiently for his signal to go, but it didn't come. Soon, a dispatcher came to his car and asked him where the driver was. Darius informed him that he was the driver. And after a brief and disbelieving exchange, the dispatcher asked Darius to wait there and walked off. Darius, oblivious to the fact that he was obviously in trouble, 
actually expected to be getting his signal to go any second. Instead, the dispatcher came back and told him that the train was out of service. This part I found funny, that uh, I guess the dispatcher just didn't want to scare him or something like that or spook him off or whatever. So he comes up and he's like, where's the driver? And he's like, I am the driver. And in Darius's mind, as this 15-year-old kid, he's like thinking like, this guy's going to buy it. Like, I just have to, I just have to like play it cool. And this guy's going to believe that I'm the driver. And then the guy, I guess he doesn't want to scare him away. So he's he doesn't want to scare him away. So he's like, just stay here for a second. And he walks away. And Darius, in his imaginative 15-year-old brain, is like, I did it. I fooled him. He's about to give me the signal. And he's sitting there thinking that this dude who just found out that this 15-year-old child is driving one of the trains is just about to let him go. <laughs> and he sits there and he's like, any second now. Green light, baby. I just find that funny, and it, and it and it's also just really indicative of that, like way you think of the way you think when you're a kid. Well, and too, like how many times in movies do you see like it's two kids in a trench coat, and they, you know, like this whole thing has two kids in a trench coat vibes, you know. And it just and it just reminds me of that thing, that way that you think of things when you're a kid, um, where sometimes you have memories back on like the way you thought about something, and you're like, man, how could I have possibly thought that was the case? And this reminds me of something like that, where he just totally thought he was going to fool this guy <laughs> if he just played it cool enough. Darius gave an announcement over the intercom, informing the passengers that the train was out of service like any self-respecting MTA driver would, and got off. He was met by cops, demanding to know where the actual train operator was. Darius said he didn't know and was promptly arrested. And let me tell you, when a 15-year-old boy gets caught driving a train in one of the most used public transportations in the world, it does not just blow over. By the next day, Darius's wild ride, which actually wasn't wild at all, it was completely by the books in every way, made the news in New York City. It was in the papers, it was on TV. Darius had reporters staking out his house. Everybody wanted to know how a child ended up driving the E-train. And I was able to find this actual video of this, of this uh, one of these news reports from, from 1980. Um, I found it at the bottom of this uh, article about Darius McCollum. Uh, it's an archived report from the new uh, from NBC. It's uh, Chuck Scarborough. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting story. Uh, if you had a weird subway ride today, this may be the reason why. Transit Authority officials were stunned, to say the least, late today when they heard a 15-year-old Queens boy had actually hijacked a subway train and taken it for a joyride. His mother was horrified, partly because she feared for his safety, but partly because she was humiliated by the fact that her darling son had been arrested. Despite the fact that some adult who worked at the MTA taught him how to operate the train, and another one asked him to drive the train by himself, which is probably some kind of crime or at minimum a fireable offense, and despite the fact that he operated the train immaculately, and he was a 15-year-old boy, he was the criminal. And that's what I was saying. That's what I was saying before about how fucked up this was. So uh, Darius gets asked by a, a, an adult worker of this of the MTA to drive the train. He's not some kid who snuck on the train and stole it or whatever. He was asked to do this. But he got arrested and sort of painted as this troublemaker on all in all these newspapers and on all these news reports. Um, and and there wasn't uh, I I couldn't find any real I couldn't find any information about like what happened. Like, did he tell them that the guy had him drive it? Did the guy get called in? Did he get in trouble? It seemed kind of like he didn't. It seemed kind of like Darius didn't rat on him and he just kind of took the heat. 
um, and the guy just kind of got away with it. Uh, but then again, I don't know how that could be possible because um, they know who was supposed to be driving the train at the time. They, it's all on a schedule, so like they they had to have known who was supposed to be on the train, so they had to have known who gave them the controls. So I don't know if that guy got in trouble or not. I don't know if they ended up kind of being like, oh, sorry, Darius, we fucked up and treated you badly, even though it really wasn't your fault. I doubt it, but um, there wasn't enough information to know. But all I know is that um, a 15-year-old child who was asked to do something got arrested, which is very fucked up to me. He just, like, shows up to work the next day like nothing happened, George Costanza style. I showed up at the appropriate time, but the train wasn't there. Well, Darius said that you asked him. I don't Darius who? I don't know any Darius McCollum. I don't know that kid. I wouldn't be surprised if if that's exactly what he did. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody just totally threw him under the bus like that. Threw him under the train? Yes. Well, also, he ends up stealing buses, so it's also, it's still relevant, but yes. Threw him under the bus, in parentheticals, train? <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just, it's fucked up. It's fucked up that he ever got arrested in the first place, because... He did not sneak on and steal this train. And even if he did, he's, you know, he's 15 years old. It's 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 a big deal that he did this. He could have killed somebody. He could have killed, I don't know, 100 people, uh, however many people. It was a packed subway train. I don't know how many people fit onto these things. Um, it's a big deal that he did this. But arresting him, I don't know, especially because he did not do that. He didn't. He, he was asked. Somebody somebody asked him to do it. And whoever you are, 15 year, whatever 15 year old boy you are, if some adult is like, hey, can you do this for me? Like, you're probably going to do it and operate the train immaculately. He did. While the news stories painted him in a decidedly unfair light, considering the circumstances, describing his brief stint as a train operator as a, quote, joyride and characterizing him as a juvenile delinquent. The one thing they were fair about was pointing out that everybody on the train described it as one of the smoothest rides they'd ever had on the subway. He was forbidden from leaving the house unless his mother approved of it, and he was never allowed to go down into the subway again. But in the beginning of what would become a very unfortunate pattern that would define most of Darius's life moving forward, he would not, could not listen. He wanted to obey his mother, he wanted to stay out of trouble, he wanted to make people proud, but he just couldn't stay away from the trains. At first, his parents tried to rule with an iron fist, constantly monitoring him and making sure he was going nowhere but school and home. But as he fell back into his habits of running away and he got harder and harder to control, eventually they just gave up. They stopped trying to control him. They stopped trying to keep him out of trouble. His mom decided to just stop worrying, hoping he would at least refrain from stunts such as solo driving a train full of unsuspecting people. Darius spent most of his time hanging out in the subway. For years, his life consisted of spending as little time as possible in school or at home, and soaking up all the knowledge of the trains as he possibly could. When he turned 18, he finally tried to realize his ultimate dream of being an actual train operator by applying to work for the MTA. He was rejected. His stunt at age 15 was well known, and apparently the city just didn't think he was worth the risk. He tried again at 18 and was rejected again. The transit system made up excuses not to hire me. They felt that I was an embarrassment to the system. You know, we feel that you would be a liability because look at who you are, look at the name that you created for yourself. And at that point, I wasn't directly to give up from hanging out in the subway system. So I kept doing what I did. I mostly feel comfortable with the statement that they didn't want to hire him. They actively didn't want to hire him because they thought that he was too much of a risk. 
Um, I feel comfortable saying that. I think it's likely very true, uh, considering the fact that he was such a good driver that I can't imagine that he just flopped on his own. Um, that they just like rejected him because he was bad. Um, but there's also a lot, some Darius himself and mostly some of the other people that were sort of advocates for him. They said that MTA didn't want to hire him because he embarrassed them, like by pointing out the flaws in their um, system. The idea that a 15 year old boy would just be able to drive a train uh, was an, was an, was a humiliation to to the to the um, to the organization that they just that that happened on their watch. And they didn't hire him out of spite. Uh, I think that there could be some element of that. Uh, but I, I don't, you know, that was just like sort of something that some of the people in the involved in the story said was the case. I think it's probably much more likely that they just didn't want to hire him because of the, you know, if if he starts driving trains and then a bunch of people die, like that's on them. Yeah, it's a big, and, and it's, it's also like a big publicity kerfluffle waiting to happen where if he messes up in any minor way then everyone's like look at mta they've fucked up and they're hiring this guy who's you know breaking the law at at a young age and they're just giving him a pass and putting recklessly endangering all these people blah 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 so i mean it could it could be some some uh combination of the two but i'm i'm i more feel comfortable putting my weight behind the idea that they just thought it was too much of a risk to darius it was as if his life was completely over yeah he got a taste of being a train operator with his brief clandestine ride and he could hang out down there ride the train as a passenger and pal around with the workers but if he wanted to actually satisfy his obsession and realize his life dreams he needed to be able to drive the trains And so he needed to have a job as a train driver, but that was all over now. He was damaged goods and likely would never be given a job operating a train. Surely he couldn't just do it anyway, right? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So Dave... How how are you feeling about the uh, the the ballad of Darius McCollum so far? I mean, part of me is like understands the compulsive nature of this and wishes that he could have gotten the help. Another part of me is like, just give the guy a fucking train. And then another part of me is like, don't give the dude a train. <laughs> this is just bad news waiting to happen. Speaking of bad news waiting to happen, you have anything to plug? I would like to briefly plug that I have a graphic novel coming out from Top Shelf called Mary Tyler Moorhawk. It's kind of like Johnny Quest meets House of Leaves meets uh, Infinite Jest. It's a weirdo book, half of its comics, half of its prose from 100 years in the future about a journalist who's obsessed with finding the creator of a TV show that was canceled after nine episodes called Mary Tyler Moorhawk. If that sounds like something you might be into, please go pre-order it right now. You can find it anywhere online, Target, Amazon indie bookstores, uh, your local comic book store. Uh, you can get it wherever you want. Fucking, uh, there's some shops here in the greater LA area, like Golden Apple, who are doing special uh, signing events where you pre-order it through them and you get a bunch of goodies signed by me, book plates and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, also my other books are available wherever you get your books. HeyDaveBaker.com, anywhere else. Spandrew, what about you? 
Um, and 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 yes, Dave is currently wearing a American flag bandana covering his head. Uh, I don't I don't I don't use social media, but if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, the the OG host of the OG co-host of Deep Cuts, you can get his book Deadbolt AI Private Eye, which is a comic about a future robot detective, by going to his website dapricerights.com, where you can pick that up. Um, you can follow us on social media by searching Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook, uh, where we post some cool pictures and videos and stuff like that. Uh, or you can join our Facebook group where we talk about the show, make memes, and kind of hang out by searching the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Discord. It's a cool community where we talk about the show, make memes, talk about other things, play games. Sometimes there's like some cool little extra special things that I offer there where, you know, if you're there at the right time, uh, you know, I offer that you can get shouted out on the show in certain ways. Or sometimes I offer um, just like cool free stuff. Like, uh, for instance, recently, we, uh, everybody was talking about that movie. What was it called? Strays? That was like an adult talking dog movie. And it, it got brought up. And I and I was basically like, who is this movie for? You Kids can't watch it. And adults don't like to watch talking dog movies. There's no there's no adult audience for a talking dog movie. Like, I get the idea of taking a kid's thing and turning it into a, a raunchy adult comedy. But I feel like the thing has to be something that adults would watch, like uh, Sausage Fest, that adult raunchy animated movie. Adults watch animated movies. I, adults don't watch talking dog movies. That's not a thing. And so I was talking about it and I was like, who is this audience for? This movie is absolutely going to flop. And some other people were kind of like, I don't know. I feel like maybe blah, 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 blah. It's a fun concept or whatever. And I said, I said, if this movie does well at the box office, I will send you these people that were disagreeing with me. I was like, I will send you uh, a, a, a T-shirt and a coffee mug from the Deep Cuts merch store for free. Every single one of you. And luckily, that was not the case. And I was right. And the movie did not do well financially. But I could have been wrong. And then like five people would have gotten free merch. Was the idea that if you did win, they would have to buy the merch? Or is it just, it's a zero-sum game. If they if you win, you have to do nothing. If, they, if you lose, you have to spend money. In a sense, it's a zero-sum game. But much more important to me than money is being wrong publicly. Fair enough. Spapa Spicy, more like Spapa Spigo. Sp- Sp- Spigo? I don't know. That didn't really work. I tried. Yeah, luckily you don't have an ego, because otherwise... Would have been would have been would have been bruised right there. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can follow me on TikTok because I fucking lied and I am on social media at Dead Boy Detective, where I make some cool videos talking about some random stuff. And now back to the show. Act two: Planes, trains, and automobiles. Minus the planes and automobiles, and with. 200% more prison time. After getting rejected by the MTA at 18, Darius was old enough to move out on his own, but had an as yet undiagnosed disability and couldn't even fathom the idea of holding a job anywhere else. Some recent studies estimate that only 16% of autistic individuals in the United States are actually employed in the workforce. And so he entered adulthood with no job, no money, and parents who expected him to move out. He was homeless. He'd hang out there all day and use his MTA worker friends to get him into employee-only areas. He'd walk up to city workers and confidently request to sign out MTA uniforms, 
which he would wear at all times. He collected keys to different areas that he slowly accumulated through basic social engineering. Eventually, he had hundreds of keys that opened things all over the city. He'd shower in the employee break areas and sleep in offices. He was living the life, or at least as much of a life as a homeless autistic man who was obsessed with driving trains but banned from ever doing so can live. When he couldn't stay underground, he'd live in homeless shelters, but every moment was in service of getting down into the tunnels again. However, simply partaking of the, quote, perks of an MTA worker wasn't enough, and eventually, in the late 80s, he gave in to a singular obsession. He started driving trains again. He'd just walk up to a train, get in the operator car, and ride it away. He'd run the trains along their routes, driving perfectly, delivering passengers safely to the stops, giving his patented announcements full of jokes and puns, and even building relationships with regular transit riders. Now that he wasn't a young boy, there was no way to tell that he wasn't just an actual train operator. Darius described the train and bus yards as being like his version of a candy store, with no on-site security present. He'd just walk up, step on a train or bus, and off he went. This is just one of my old stopping grounds here in Queens. As you can see, there's a massive amount of buses. Believe me, I used to just help myself. No questions asked, nobody really bothered me. If I wasn't in the bus department over here, I'd go to the train yard. If I didn't go to the train yard, I'd go back to the bus department. If you notice, the bus is sitting here un unoccupied. So I can just go open the door, start the bus up, and, and pull on out with the bus. Nobody would suspect anything because they, they probably think I'm just one of the drivers. There's a security booth over here, but guess what? There's no security over here this time of day. So it's like, help yourself. It's like self-service. People get off the bus, leave the doors wide open. Ain't, ain't that amazing? There's no keys needed on city buses. There's just a, a button, push engine start, release the brakes, put it in gear, go. So we didn't do a uh, like a reaction to to Darius McCollum uh, because as the in the story the, there's such a wide gap in this story that like in the, the whole first act of this of this episode he's a kid so it felt weird to like look at a picture of him as an adult but now that we've gotten to the place where he's a, a grown adult uh, what are what are your impressions of Darius McCollum seems like a little bit of a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he has a very he has a very particular way of speaking that I can't necessarily put my finger on. It's like a very kind of like this, and I said to this, and I blah, 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 and it's like very clipped and very you know his sentences kind of end on a you know on a they have this rhythm to them and they end on this like kind of point. And sometimes he talks so fast that he like slurs his words and kind of says things, you know, he kind of swallows his words at the end of sentences. So sometimes you can't always understand what he's saying, but he's always talking like this. And it's always very matter of fact. Um, and he always kind of like half says slang and sayings where he doesn't exactly say it right, but he says it in a way where you kind of get what he's trying to say, but he doesn't exactly say the right words when he's talking. It's a very, it's a very particular way of, of expressing himself. There was a dude who came into the comic book store uh, that I worked at in high school who was very similar to him, had the same kind of little like speech impe impediment thing where you kind of like round out your vowels and mispronounce letters, you know, a lot of people do that, have uh, an obsession. And this specific guy's obsession that came into the comic book store that I worked at was Spider-Man and he was... He was convinced that the black suit Spider-Man was stolen from him, that he had written a letter to a Jim Shooter in like the late 70s, early 80s, suggesting some storyline where Spider-Man would get a black Spider-Man suit. And um, anytime Spider-Man's black suit would come up, which, you know, it comes up frequently. You're in a comic book store. People are talking about Spider-Man or whatever. 
and um or venom or whatever and uh he would get really angry and it would he, he had a similar way of speaking really fast but not having a lot of diction and he's just all kind of starting to slur together and like similar vibes very similar vibes in hindsight that guy also probably had asperger's of some kind so he so he he went he went full sophia stewart yeah i think that it's a little different in that i think that the dude that worked at the comic book store did write a letter suggesting Black Suit Spider-Man. And then, you know, they just I think actually Black Suit Spider-Man did come from a fan pitch. You're like, no, this guy literally was he did. He fully they stole it. Yeah. And he was also convinced that they had stolen Dark Claw from him, which is like that's pretty far, man. The idea that there would be a Batman Wolverine hybrid crossover between Marvel and DC and that you would get the name right and have a costume design right. I don't know, man. That's that's pretty far, dude. Yeah, but it's all it's it's a it's a way of kind of like mythologizing yourself with plausible deniability because if you just like do shit like that, chances are at, at some point somebody's going to use come out with an idea that's similar to something that you had written in a letter at some point. And then you can just tell yourself that they stole it from you and like there's no way of proving that. So like you've manifested uh, you know a real situation from essentially nothing like it most likely was not stolen from him but there's no way to really fully prove that so in his world they they fucking stole that from him and he can just live that life for the forever darius spent the next 30 years of his life stealing buses and trains every day living as if he was an employee of the mta and driving as many of them as he could but unfortunately those moments of bliss were only a fraction of that whole 30 years inevitably Darius would get caught impersonating a city train operator, which is a felony, and he wasn't a child anymore, so he'd go to jail. Darius spent over half of his adult life in jail for driving city trains and buses. The time between prison stays when he'd be out on the streets impersonating an MTA worker usually lasted only a few months. During this time, it wasn't even a matter of resisting temptation and finally giving in. There was no resistance. Darius would sit in prison counting the days until he was released so he could get back out there and get as many train rides in as possible before he was caught again. The city wouldn't hire him to drive the trains, and he couldn't hold down another job and therefore couldn't earn a living. So instead, he used his own time behind bars as currency to afford a few sublime moments behind controls of a train every few years. It reminds me of that joke about how to a rich person, a $130 parking ticket is just a $130 parking pass, but just a much sadder and more fucked up version, which is a very bleak way that I that I decided to think about it. Um, when you put it like that, it's incredibly tragic um, that he essentially, I can't have a job, I can't make money to live a normal life. So instead, my time in jail is the money that I have, and I spend it on a couple of minutes of driving a train every couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't even know how to process that it, just in terms of how existentially bleak that is. Like, man, that is that is so dark, especially in like, especially in the fact that you just don't know what's going to happen to you when you go into prison, <laughs> you know? Like, you're literally taking your life into your hands in that one. Yeah. And and honestly, like, I don't even really want to go into this too much because it's really dark and really bleak and almost just too fucked up to even talk about. Like, our show isn't our show isn't like super explicit in this way. Um, and also, it's like not fully it's not fully proven. I, I, I veer away from talking about things that I don't think are basically fact. 
um, in in some of these episodes. It it probably is true, but there's just no verifying it with the given information. But there's like there's a this this guy who's been like an advocate for for Darius for years, and he recently posted this like kind of ranting blog post on his website, just kind of like we'll get to this at towards the end of this of the of the episode. We'll get to this stuff, so I don't want to go into it too much now. But he posted a thing in response to some more recent thing that happened to Darius where he just kind of was going off. Like he seemed like he was just so fed up and exhausted by watching this guy be fucked over for years. And he said some really fucked up stuff about how Darius was just like raped in prison and all this stuff that's not in this stuff about him being raped and abused in prison is not in the research that I found. Uh, the documentary, any of the articles about him, any of the news reports. It doesn't talk about that stuff. It just talks about him being in jail. Um, I'm assuming that Darius is probably just humiliated about discussing that, so it's just not in the documentary at all. Um, But this guy was saying some really fucked up stuff about the things that happened to him in prison. Um, Really fucked up, really shitty. Like, it just can't be stressed how, I mean, and we haven't even really gotten into the real meat of this, but, like, it cannot be stressed how fucked over this guy has been by the justice system like it's just it's unspeakable stuff that i don't even really want to talk about just know that it probably is there you know um but the but the other thing is about that is i i talk about this concept in a few other episodes i talked about it in the david hahn story where i talked about how it kind of doesn't come across very well in the episode because it's so structured to be this kind of like timeline and it kind of glosses over periods where there's not a lot going on and so it's it's hard to convey how patient David Hahn was in waiting for all these things waiting for this random material to be mailed to him or waiting for somebody to respond to a letter that he wrote or whatever and that there's like months and months in between these events that we kind of go through this is like that times a million because we're just we're glossing over 30 years because in in this 30 now almost maybe like 40 years of of his public life only a handful of things really happened these these incidents where he stole trains and was arrested and things like that only a handful of those things have actually happened in this span of like 40 years the 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 majority of what's happened in that 40 years is that he has just sat in jail so this is like this is that times a thousand of like we're really glossing over the fact that this is 40 years of Darius just sitting in jail monotonously, maybe at some time, maybe at some points, not monotonously and being subjected to horrible treatment and things happening to him in jail that we can't even know that are just unspeakable. Um, and we're just touching on the events that happened. But I just really want to remind you that this is across 40 years of this dude just sitting, rotting away in a cell in a cell for reasons that, as we'll talk about more and more, I don't feel fair to me. Throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s, he did stints in multiple other correctional facilities. It eventually got easier to get caught as he became notorious with the various transit systems around New York and New Jersey. Eventually, there was a poster with his face on it in almost every employee locker room, dispatch tower, break room and train car, warning people to call the police the moment they saw him snooping around. In 1997, for instance, Darius got a hold of an MTA superintendent badge. He put on the badge along with his stolen MTA uniform and went out to a train yard and started managing the team of workers on the site. 
He pointed out various regulation violations and had the workers completely revamp the site, significantly improving its operations. By the end of the day, Darius had whipped the site into shape and had everything above board. It was literally like that episode of Monk where he goes undercover as a butler at a mansion in order to solve a murder, but ends up becoming obsessed with being the perfect butler and completely revamps the way the service staff operates and everyone thinks he's the best butler they've ever met. Except, you know, once again, a much bleaker version. The next day, he went to another train yard and did it all over again. However, on the third day, he attempted to do it again at another train yard, but this time, somebody on the site recognized him from one of his various posters and called the police. He did 18 months in prison for that two days worth of fun. It seems like there's got to be some version of this, though, that could be productive for everyone. Like, assign him a chaperone from the MTA and work with him because if he is this some this like transportation savant and the reasons he keeps getting arrested is because he's you know doing this shit unlicensed okay get him licensed give him somebody to hold his hand and make sure he doesn't do anything weird and then listen to the dude's ideas yeah yeah i mean i i agree completely and I do think there's definitely some there 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 was and is there is and especially was because at this point, this dude has been in jail for like 40 years. Most of his life is kind of just over like he's 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 like 60 or something like that. He's I don't want to I don't want to spoil the rest of it, but there especially was a solution that could have been come up with in these past 40 years. Something could have been done to that would benefit everybody, not just like, oh, give this guy a pass. Something could have been done that would have been um, perfectly acceptable to everybody involved. Darius, the MTA, the public, the police, everybody could have had a solution that satisfied. Um, as we'll talk about more, the reason for that is because just nobody fucking cared. It was like, do we want to work a little bit harder to come up with a solution that works for everybody? Or do we want to not work at all and come up with a solution that works for us and fucking just destroys this guy? That was the choice they had, and they chose the easy, let's fucking destroy this guy route. But but yeah, it's it's like so many people in this story, so many of his, of his advocates talk about the idea of like, just, just give him a fucking job. Just give him a job driving a train. It solves the problem. He just wants to drive a train. Just give him a job driving a train. And that coupled with the fact that all of his crimes that he's committed, um, nobody ever got hurt. And in fact, what he did was like every all around, it was all good. He, he he drove these trains perfectly. These trains and buses, he drove them perfectly. He just drove people to their destinations and got them off. He he executed the routes flawlessly. Um, and he went out to these sites and like actually improved them. Uh, he got everything working to code and was pointed out flaws and ways that people weren't doing things right. Everything that he did was demonstrably positive and, and, and a benefit for the MTA. So there's that. So all these advocates are like, just you just give him a job. Now, the devil's advocate that I could play mostly agreeing with that is that all that being said, it still is a bit of a risk on the part of the of this organization. To be like, oh, you know that guy who's just been stealing trains for like 15 years? Yeah, let's just give him a job. Like that there's there's there is an inherent risk to that that I understand from the perspective of the MTA why they wouldn't do that. I get it. I get the concept of it. However, it really just speaks to how broken not well, no, not, it doesn't speak to how broken. It speaks to 
the inherent lack of effectiveness of our justice system. And it really it really just hammers into that, like, you did the crime, now do the time mentality that our justice system focuses around and that ev- a lot of people feel, which is like, it doesn't matter that technically his crimes were victimless and that everything he did was a, a net positive for the MTA. You just can't do that. And because you did it, you have to go to jail. Yeah, but there can't be some exception. There can't be some version of this that's like, this guy is a fucking, like, he needs a little bit of help, a little bit of chaperoning, a little bit of stewardship, and like, everybody benefits? Like, there's, there's got, I just, I just don't believe that there's not some version of this that could have been good. There's definitely, there definitely is, and it, it, we'll cover a couple times where it almost was that, but then wasn't, but there definitely was. There definitely was a, a, a solution where they did that, they had somebody chaperone him, they basically, I mean, I don't fucking know, it could have been anything. It could have just been like, we'll just, like, pair you up with some other MTA worker and you guys are just buddies and you and, and you're not you're not allowed to go out of sight of this other guy and you have to work together and then he just monitors you at all times like, like there's something that they could have done I don't fucking know what it was but there was something but they but they didn't do it and instead they went this route of like you committed crimes so you have to go to jail you have to be punished for these crimes you committed which is this very punitive approach to to criminal justice that is prevalent in in the United States both in the way that our system works but also with the way I think a lot of people feel about how criminal justice should work um and we'll talk about that more later but uh, which I think is just it's it, it does it's not effective obviously it does not rehabilitate people and in my opinion as well as just the data that we see it's not just my random opinion I'm thinking of the data we see shows that it just leads to this constant recidivism repeat offenders that just constantly get cycled through in and out of the justice system because they're not being helped they're just being pushed to commit these crimes over and over again in a cycle and go back to jail. Because that's just what people want. They want them to go to jail. They want them to die. They want them to just disappear. Um, And the system favors that, you know. But we'll talk about that more later. Directly upon getting out of jail in February of 2000, he used one of his keys to let himself into a dispatch tower underground so he could get warm and watch the trains on their routes from the series of security cameras. While sitting in the tower, a nearby train started getting up to speed when the emergency brakes were somehow tripped and the train jolted to a stop. Always looking for opportunities to live up to the legacy of his hero Superman, Darius jumped up and went to assist the train. He asked the train operator what happened, but they didn't know. He worked with various other MTA employees to get the passengers off the train and make sure everybody was safe. While they did that, the train operator suddenly recognized Darius from one of the posters and called the cops. They came down onto the train platform and started questioning Darius. Thinking that he could avoid being arrested if he just explained to the cops that he was trying to help during a crisis, and relay his heroic acts to them. He came clean and told them he wasn't a real MTA worker. He was arrested anyway, and unfortunately, his confession was used against him. Since he was in the dispatch tower, where various controls for the trains are located, including access to remotely tripping emergency brakes on trains, the police suspected that he had actually been the one to flip a switch and trip the brakes while he was messing around with the tower. And there, there's various points in the story like this, where like, because this, this, this train, the emergency brakes got tripped somehow, and Darius runs out and he tries to help and he's getting every, all these passengers off and stuff like that. And he's helping out this train operator. And then later on, the train operator is like, wait a minute, that's that guy. And he calls the cops and gets him arrested. 
And there's various moments like this where I where somebody does this, and I'm just like, fuck this person. Like, what a what a fucking asshole. What a narc. And I, I get mad at the idea because he like goes out and helps them, and then he just calls the cops on them. And I get mad at these these people. But then again, it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, I it's not necessarily their fault because this the the MTA puts out these posters everywhere, and they don't tell people why. They just say, if you see this guy, call the cops. So from the from the perspective of this guy, he doesn't know. He doesn't know if this guy's a serial killer or something like that. Like, he has no idea. He has no information or context. He just sees a poster that's like, this guy is dangerous. So you can't necessarily blame him for being like, fuck, and calling the cops because he doesn't know what what the story. He doesn't know this guy. And that's by design of the MTA. They, they put out these posters that don't give all the information. They're kind of manipulative in that way. And so, yeah, I, every time I every time it gets to a part in the story where somebody calls the cops on him, I get mad at the person and think about them as like a fucking narc. Uh, but then again, I guess it's not really their fault. They did. They couldn't have known. He was subjected to hours of interrogation while the New York City D.A. attempted to get him to confess to the crime. I'm struggling a little bit to believe that you didn't flip the switch. Yeah, I know. That, that was a train. And you know that we think you did. They was under suspicion that I was the one that actually um, caused the train to go into emergency from the tower. Did you do it? No, I didn't. You know why I think you did? Because I know so much about it. You know so much about it. The box is right there inside the control room. It's a very small room, right? Yep. But it's just like I told them before. I says, if you would dust that board, you're not going to find my fingerprints on it. I was trying to do everything I could to get myself cleared. The keys that I have can keep me into the tower, but the key cannot. The keys that I have will not give me access to the switches. All of this was directly all impossible. It was an accident. It was a mistake. But I want you to be honest with me about it. Because other, otherwise, I don't believe you. No, I'm, I'm being as honest as I can be. I didn't touch the board under any circumstances. Yeah, so unfortunately, I, I don't know if this fully uh, comes across, you know, listening or just, I, I don't know if this is conveyed well enough, but, the, you know, uh, Darius is, at this point, you know, it's known that he uh, has Asperger's, as uh, we'll talk about the nuances of that term later, but. It's no, he's already been diagnosed with that at this point. Um, so he's at this time, he's a man with, with Asperger syndrome and he's also homeless. He has no money, so he has no legal representation. So this, uh, this interview is, is very coercive because in Darius's mind, he's thinking, um, I didn't trip the train. I didn't do this. And in fact, I tried to help when this happened. So all I have to do is just tell the truth. And tell them exactly what happened and tell them that I was just in the dispatch tower. I didn't touch anything and I tried to help. And if I just tell the truth about this and I get it on video, this will help me to get out of trouble. Like I won't be sent to prison for trying to kill people or whatever. And because he that's how his mind works. That's how that's how he thinks. He just thinks like I just tell them the truth and then this I get this result. He has a very transactional mathematical way of thinking about things. And he has no idea or conception that he shouldn't be saying any of this. He should not be talking unless he has a lawyer. He should not be saying he shouldn't be telling them that he was in the tower. He shouldn't be telling him that he has the keys. He shouldn't be admitting to any of this stuff. But he has no idea about that. He's just thinking, I tell them the truth and I get the result that I don't get in trouble. Um, so, yeah, this 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 deposition or this interrogation or whatever you want to whatever it's called uh, it's 
comes off as very coercive to me because he has nobody there to represent him. He has no lawyer. He's just a, a, a you know a homeless disabled man who doesn't understand the full weight of what he's doing. Um, and as we're gonna find out, it pretty much fucks him over. And even his pointing out that they wouldn't find his fingerprints on the control board and that he didn't have any keys that would even allow him to activate the control board, making the whole thing an impossibility, he was charged with reckless endangerment for tripping the brakes. After sitting in jail for about a year, he went to trial for the crime. He got five years in prison, his first major stint being locked up. So this isn't the first time this is gonna happen to him, but there are several times in his life leading up to, you know, today, where not only has he just gotten massive prison sentences, but also he's just sat in jail while, the, while awaiting trial um, because he has no money. He has no way of bailing himself out. He ha and he has no way of like getting legal representation and all this stuff. So um, he just sat in jail for a year before they even sentences, sen sentenced him. Um, so ultimately, you know, he's going to spend six years in prison for this situation. During his stay in jail, the New York City government, the very people who essentially put him there, started consulting with him. He was very knowledgeable of the public transit system and had successfully infiltrated their systems, stolen buses and trains, and gotten access to things that no civilian should ever be given access to. They realized that he could be a tremendous help in pointing out flaws and vulnerabilities in their security systems that might prevent other, much more nefarious criminals from accessing the transit system in similar ways. Darius worked with the city, giving them all the information he could in hopes that maybe this might lead to some kind of shortening of his sentence. Instead, at some point, the city started to fully realize just how knowledgeable of the New York transit system Darius actually was. And it was beyond what they could have imagined. He knew more about the subway system than most of them did. This could be dangerous. The city started to figure out that if anyone were able to get near Darius and start asking him questions in jail, a terrorist organization could get access to a ton of compromising information that they just simply didn't want getting out. The city worked with the prison to ensure that something like this couldn't happen. Darius was moved to lockdown housing, a heavy security area of the prison, one step below solitary confinement. He was kept in a private room, not allowed contact with any other inmates, and not allowed to roam the prison yard or have access to any of the recreational areas. And if he was to travel to any other locations in the prison, he'd have to do so with his legs shackled, being chaperoned by a fleet of guards. Instead of a shortened sentence for his efforts in helping the city to strengthen the security of the transit system, he was sent to hell for the remainder of his five-year sentence. So far, Darius has just been not treated fairly by the the system the you know the, the the government the police the courts or the prison system he hasn't been treated fairly um in my and many people's opinions like you like we were talking about before there was there was something that they could have done to like solve this to make everybody happy right this is the point that crosses over into abuse of this man torture of this man he gives them help consults with them and in return, they just lock him in a room for like five years where he, he can't do anything or go anywhere. Not only is he in prison, but he's essentially in solitary confinement. And this is a completely nonviolent person who has never harmed anybody in his entire life, has not ever shown any kind of violent tendencies, except for whenever he was like a kid in school, like flipping tables or whatever. He has never done anything that would on paper land a prisoner in solitary confinement. And, and yet he's put into this lockdown housing for five years because they're like, oh, what if a terrorist asked him how to fucking get into our train or whatever? Just like 
so fucked up so fucked up it's it's so shitty this this is where it really crosses over um into just being like abuse and just dehuman dehumanization is what it is and we'll, we'll we'll talk about that more but like this is where he just is fully dehumanized throughout the time he would maintain communication with his mom promising to straighten up when he got out he told her he wanted to be a family again each time he was released instead he'd head back to the trains and end up in jail again at first, his mom dealt with the constant disappointment, but eventually she grew tired of Darius's empty promises, or rather, promises his disability wouldn't allow him to keep. She stopped writing to him as much in jail, stopped expressing her unconditional love to him. By the early 1990s, she and Darius's dad decided to retire to North Carolina. This made it even harder for Darius to see them, and even though his mom begged him to move out there and live with them, he just couldn't tear himself away from New York City and his beloved metro system. And Darius's devotion to the MTA was intense and unconditional, despite the fact that they would not hire him. In fact, during the 2005 MTA strike, which lasted three days in December and was one of the only three New York City transit worker strikes in history, Darius actually marched in full uniform. He was so devoted that at one point he was nominated by some fellow strikers to become a union rep, to which he had to admit that he wasn't actually an MTA worker and probably didn't qualify. The other MTA workers were mystified as to why some random non-transit worker would be so committed to the cause. Ultimately, Darius was arrested alongside some other protesters who were getting onto trains and pulling the emergency brake at each stop to try and get the trains off schedule. He spent 30 days in jail for that one. So he... He, he marched in fucking solidarity with the MTA workers for this three-day strike. He was there. He was fucking, he was, he was, he was, he was with his comrades fighting for, for equal pay that he was not receiving at all because it was not actually a real employee. Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels almost like if you take one of the, or two of the little anecdotes from his life, they like, they seem like episodes from The Office or 30 Rock or something where they have this comical twist to them. But then stacked up over the course of a life, you're like, oh, my God, no, this is like a Darren Aronofsky movie. This is like just so fucking bleak. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because like what you were saying before about the the George Costanza thing, I feel like especially when you kind of watch Darius talk about these things and just like the, the very like peculiar nonchalant matter of fact way he talks about things um the individual things that he's he has done are like things that would happen in an episode of Seinfeld but then it's like this is what these people in Seinfeld would really be like in real life if they did these things and in the in the grand scheme of things it's just like it's just a dark fucking surreal almost Kafka-esque nightmare like if you were an actual person that really what was so like almost narcissistic in this way and and so like insistent on doing things in this particular way it would just ruin your life utterly just destroy you and that's and that's and that's what he's done however another thing happened in the mid 2000s darius always figured he was much better with the trains than with people let alone women Despite this, he always held out hope that maybe he'd meet the right girl, and she would help him put aside his obsession with the trains for good. And that almost happened for him. During one of his brief stints as a free man around this time, he was getting off a subway train when he saw a woman sitting on a platform bench. He walked up to her and attempted to strike up a conversation. Emphasis on attempted, because he was talking to Nelly Rodriguez, a seamstress who recently moved to the U.S. from Ecuador, and didn't speak a word of English. They were able to get a few things across to each other though. Namely, Darius introduced himself as an actual MTA employee, which Nelly was impressed by. 
They began dating, and eventually Darius moved in with Nellie in her New York apartment. Things actually started off great for the couple. They were happy and enjoyed each other's company, despite the fact that they literally couldn't communicate. Nellie didn't know any English and never learned any. Darius would do a lot of the cooking and cleaning around the house, which Nellie appreciated, and he showered her with love and attention. Everything was amazing, all except for the small detail that their entire relationship was built on a lie, and that Darius was not, nor had he ever been, employed by the MTA and was in fact a career criminal. I, I almost... I almost find this this their their uh their relationship I find to be heartwarming. This this idea this like romantic idea that um uh Darius as this uh autistic man who finds it incredibly difficult to connect with and communicate with other people, um really really terrible in social situations, um finds a connection with somebody through the fact that they can't talk and they're able to they're able to actually connect through the language barrier because of the fact that normally he's really bad at social situations, but because they can't communicate, she doesn't know that. So they're actually are able to like work together and like enjoy each other's company. I find that to be like a, a, a very romantic and heartwarming idea. Yeah, on one level, it sounds like a Hallmark movie, you know, it's like love at first speech love at first love is silent <laughs> i don't know i don't know what it would be called but it, it feels like one of those high concept like it's a romantic comedy but with no dialogue you know yeah um it it it, it and it it you want it to be like the happy ending you you at this point you're like you're begging you you know that you know the the whole story so you so you know it's not going in that direction but you're just wanting it to you're just like please let this be the the release of the fucking nightmare please let him just live happy happily ever after with this seamstress and stop getting arrested and going to prison for stealing trains and just like live this quirky super adorable life where his wife just doesn't speak english and they just like somehow like really get along and just have a great marriage please let that be how this goes um and it and it does not it does not <laughs> it it does not oh god it wouldn't take long for Nellie to figure this out, though. Sometime after they began living together, Darius was yet again caught and arrested for hijacking a city train. Nellie was shocked to learn all at once that her boyfriend was not a city worker, that he was a homeless ex-con, and that he was in jail all at the same time. She contemplated leaving Darius, but he got some of his Spanish-speaking cellmates to call her and explain why she shouldn't. Eventually, after some back-and-forth communication between their translators, Nellie agreed to stay with Darius, and he asked her to marry him. The wedding happened at the prison while he was locked up. Every oh week, my god! Yeah, oh yeah. Oh my god! They got, they got married in 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 prison. They got a, they had a prison wedding. Well, okay, this has this is horrible. This is horrible, but I have to ask this. There's no way. There's no way that I mean, look, I'm not saying that the, that she didn't love him or have a connection with him in whatever way. But a hundred percent, that was an exchange. To me, that seems like an exchange. I will stay with you emotionally while you're going through this hard time for a certain amount of time. While in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'll just bide my time till it's easier to divorce in exchange for the marriage and the green card. Yeah, and I, I, I had a, I had kind of like a thought like that, which re reading into this, which was the whole scenario, once again, going back to the Seinfeld thing. The whole scenario kind of comes off like it, in a way like a goofy sitcom scenario where you have like the character who meets this woman and thinks and like falls in love with her or thinks that, you know, wants to date her for whatever reason. 
And it's like this weird one sided thing where he thinks that they're like in love and they're in a relationship. And then she and then it keeps cutting to like her saying stuff. And you see it in subtitles where she's just like, I don't know what the fuck this white guy is talking about, but I'm just going to go along with it. It That's what it comes off to me like. It comes off to me almost like it is like a Seinfeld thing where like George like thinks that he's in love with some like some woman that he meets on the subway that doesn't speak English. And then we keep seeing what she's saying and she just like thinks he's fucking crazy, but she's just like going along with it because she doesn't know what to say. It, it comes off to me like that. That's that's the that's the thought that I that I had. The wedding happened at the prison while he was locked up, and she visited him every week until he was once again released into general population. Darius and Nellie went back to living together, now a married couple, and Darius promised he wouldn't mess around with trains anymore, which lasted all of about a couple months. Eventually, much like he'd done as a kid at his parents' house, Darius would disappear for long stints of time, and Nellie would be left worrying about him. Eventually, she started to suspect that he was having an affair. When she finally confronted Darius about this, he admitted that he was indeed having an affair with the trains. I hope that's how he phrased it. I don't know. I don't know if that is how he, he phrased it. But in the documentary, he does literally say that um, whenever he drove the train as a 15 year old boy in 1980, uh, he, he said that that was his version of losing his, his virginity because he said he never like was good with women and didn't think that he would ever have a girlfriend. So he considered driving a train to be losing his virginity. So he had like a very personal connection with these trains. And I and considering some of the stuff that he says in, the, in interviews, I I would not be surprised if he literally said, yes, I'm having an affair with the trains. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if he said that. And then Nellie would just be like, OK, I, I don't know what you're saying. I can't I, I don't speak English. But to be a fly on the wall, I, I really would would like to know what those interactions were like, because it once again doesn't go into detail of like what that means. All it said all. All that it says is that Nellie could not speak English, they lived together, and that he was able to sort of convey things in that general way that you're able to convey to people that don't speak the same language. Um, like, I remember when I was in Italy, we went to McDonald's, and I wanted to order a, uh, a veggie burger, or whatever it was, they had it on the menu, and I was trying, I was like looking it up in a in an Italian translator on my phone, just like how to say something. I, it wasn't going to be the right way of saying it. It, but just like saying the words that would like light up the right way to where I would get what I wanted. And so I was I was looking at it and it's like, you know, saying no in it, Italian is no. It's the same thing. And the way that they say meat is carne. That's just that meat, carne is Italian for meat. So I went up and I ordered. I said, whatever the name of the burger was or whatever. I said, no carne. And I was like, that's not the way you say that. But like, Hopefully she gets what I'm trying to say. And she's like, she's like, huh? And I'm like, I'm like this thing, no carne, no carne. And she's just like, oh, and she like seems like she punches something in. I pay for it or whatever. And then they gave me my order and it's got meat on it. And I'm just like, they did not. She did not get what I was saying. It did not come across. So I go back up there and I'm like, uh, this, um, the the I didn't want meat on this. I didn't want no. I didn't want carne on this burger. And she's just like she did not get what I was saying. And then she went and get got a different guy, and it was, he was like a manager or whatever. And he could speak a little bit more English. And he was like, "What was the what was the problem?" Um, and I said, um, "I I I tried to order this with no meat, and it has meat on it." And he kind of like and he's like he's like 
no, you didn't want no meat on this, no meat on this. And I was like, no, I didn't want, I didn't want meat on it. I wanted a no meat burger. And he's like, oh, and then he took the burger and then he walked over and then he angrily threw it into a trash can like this. He walked over to a, to a trash can and he went like angrily threw it into a trash can. And then he started angrily yelling at people in the back. And I was like, I was like, whoa. And I was like, I I don't know if something about that really made that guy mad. And I just got a bunch of people in trouble somehow. Or if that's just how Italian people talk. I have no idea. Either that guy's really mad and he's yelling at people or that's just a normal thing. And he's just talking normally. I have no idea. <laughs> he's just really committed to giving people good customer service man he's like we had one shot these fucking americans they never come in here we had to show them up and we had to do it well and you guys fucked it you fucked it it could have been that or it could have been him mad at me and then like being like this fucking stupid american he doesn't even know how to fucking order shit right they don't know how to talk to us i have no idea i have no clue what happened in that interaction all i could see was that he angrily threw it away and then angrily to me, like yelled at everybody. And then I got what I wanted. That's all I know. I don't actually know what happened though. But I, but I would love to see those interactions between Nelly and Darius and see how they actually went. Because I can't even imagine how that was like to like live with somebody and be married to somebody that you cannot communicate with. It must be so, so bizarre. I don't know. Maybe it's even better. Who knows? Yeah. You're like, actually, this is fucking great. You can't miscommunicate when you can't even communicate. There's some kind of fucking Gallagher joke in here somewhere. He had gone back to obsessively spending time underground, coveting the trains and waiting for the perfect moment when he could just hop on and go for a spin. Nellie asked Darius to choose between her and the trains. Darius chose the trains. They separated and divorced shortly after. Darius was never unfaithful to the trains again. But the story's only halfway done. There's still more to learn about the tragic life of Darius McCollum, such as his attempt to finally give up trains for good, dealing with a corrupt lawyer, the struggle to finally become a free man for good, and of course, lots and lots of train theft. All that and more next time on episode two of the story of Darius McCollum. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com.